In August of 2006, three-year-old Marcus Faisal was reported missing by his foster parent, Liz Carroll. But after weeks of desperate searching by the entire community, the horrific truth of what happened to little Marcus was revealed. This is the tragic story about a three-year-old boy who died because those that were responsible for him failed him. Not only did they fail him, but his death was the direct result of their calculated actions. You'll hear how a negligent foster care agency and three key people caught in a love triangle led to this little boy's death. Please join me as we look further into the story of Marcus Faisal and discover how the lies behind his disappearance started to unravel. Marcus Faisal was a happy toddler who enjoyed the same kinds of things that most boys do his age. If the cartoon Bob the Builder came on, he'd be watching it. He loved to see bubbles floating and bouncing through the air and looking at flowers. He was a very happy kid. Every single photo we could find of him showed a little boy who always had a beaming smile on his adorable little face and what almost appeared to be a magical glimmer in his eyes. One former neighbor described Marcus as an awesome little guy, but on the other hand, he'd also been described as a busy child that was quite a handful. For parents who've experienced the toddler years, you probably don't find that as an unusual description for a youngster. Most toddlers are fairly active and tend to get into a bit of mischief from time to time. But that wasn't the case here. What Marcus's mom dealt with went beyond that. According to family and friends, Marcus was not only autistic, but had the mental development of a one-year-old when he was three. There was also some speculation as to whether he had been affected by fetal alcohol syndrome. It's uncertain as to whether he was ever actually diagnosed, or rather, if these labels were placed on him because he was a spirited child. Friends and family say that Marcus's mother Donna Trevino often confessed that she was having difficulty managing Marcus because he was such an active child. A neighbor said she would often see Trevino crying because she felt so exhausted. Marcus wasn't an only child. He also had an older brother and a younger sister, and although they reportedly all had different fathers, they all lived together with their mother Donna in Middleton, Ohio. The father of Marcus's younger sister was still in the picture and frequent calls were made to police during domestic violence disputes. Once when officers arrived on the scene and made their way into the Trevino home, they noticed a distinct smell of mold throughout the house. When they made their way up to Marcus's room, they noted that the walls had been smeared with feces. 
There was a mattress on the floor and a baby gate in the doorway. It was clear that Donna Trevino was out of her depths and was doing whatever she could to manage the situation, but wasn't equipped for the task. As a result, a series of reports were made to Child Protection Services. It was clear to those around Donna that she needed help. At one point, it was reported that Trevino's boyfriend had spanked little Marcus and left bruises on his backside. Another call was made after Marcus climbed out the second-story window of their home and fell off the roof, resulting in an injury requiring stitches. As if that wasn't scary enough for any parent to fathom, another call was made after Marcus was found wandering the street alone, nearly being hit by a car. She knew she was in over her head and wasn't able to keep her children safe, or herself for that matter. Trevino told authorities that she didn't think she could manage caring for the children any longer, and turned them over to the state, relinquishing her parental rights, agreeing to cut off all communication with them. Some might judge Donna for her decision. Some might think this might have been the wisest choice she could have made for them. Little did she know that things were about to get a whole lot worse for her precious son. May the 5th, 2006. Lifeway for Youth placed Marcus in the care of a married couple named David and Liz Carroll in Union Township, Ohio. At the time, Lifeway for Youth was a private nonprofit agency that was being contracted by the state foster care system. Liz and David Carroll were licensed foster parents and daycare providers, which was their sole source of income. At the time of Marcus's placement, the Carrolls were also fostering another child and had a child of their own. From the outside, the Carrolls appeared to be a normal and happy family, but behind closed doors was another story. There were issues in the home that hadn't been accounted for before entrusting Marcus to them. Things were about to go from bad to worse for poor little Marcus. Before Marcus came into the Carol's lives, the couple had lived in at least 10 different homes. Neither of them ever had a steady job. They consistently failed to report the number of people living in their home, receiving thousands of dollars from the government. At one point, David Carroll had even been arrested for domestic violence after holding a knife to his wife's throat and throwing a knife at a microwave. He also punched holes into the walls of the couple's rental home. Interviews with children later revealed that both Liz and David had hit them with belts and their hands. David Carroll had also been struggling with bipolar disorder. None of this was ever disclosed to Lifeway and would have disqualified them immediately from being foster parents. You might be wondering how the Carols managed to get away with withholding 
all this kind of information. After all, you'd think a foster care agency would make sure to do all the necessary background checks, speaking to references, and conducting extensive training, especially before placing a child with special needs into a home. You might be surprised to know that Liz Carroll only provided one reference, which was a relative who was never contacted. You might be shocked to know that Liz and David never completed the required number of hours needed to become licensed foster parents. This quite possibly could infuriate you. So we decided to ask a professional in the field as to what is required to become a foster parent. My name is Melinda. I've worked for the state of Missouri for 21 years, and 16 of those years I've worked with the Division of Children's Services as a case manager and a supervisor for the Specialized Foster Parent Program. The agencies usually look for people who are willing to provide a stable home for children and teens whose families are in crisis. They need to be understanding and patient. Uh, they need to realize that those children have experienced some trauma in their short lives which is some of the topics they'll learn about in the training that they'll take prior to having any child or children placed in their home. For the state of Missouri, each of the foster parents have their own like foster parent case manager, and they're in charge of keeping track of their training and if they have all their background checks in place. They'll work with the case managers to kind of match up the child to the foster parent. And my state, they're required to see the child twice a month in the home. They meet with the foster parent and the child and talk with the child if they can talk and kind of follow up with the foster parent as far as how the child is adjusting in the home, if they've said anything, how they're acting, if they're having any behavioral problems. Usually, if they're going to be taking in a child with special needs, um, they've usually gone through specialized training. Usually, there's not a lot for medical. They get compensated a little bit more for kids who are medical or behavioral, and that usually sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, I get paid more. I want to be this type of foster parent. But sometimes when the child's placed in the home, they're going to have an eye-opening experience and those type of behaviors that they're going to see. Some reasons, uh, people may become foster parents for the wrong reasons, maybe because they think they're going to get a good compensation for the children that they have in their home. So, and then they may take quite a few foster children in their home, but they may not provide the basic necessities because they think that's all they are going to be doing is housing the child. We also wanted to ask someone that has been a foster parent what their personal experience was like in the vetting process. My name is Michelle, and I was a foster parent for a little over two years. I just always wanted to help children out. Um, most of my jobs have always been involving children. This is something that my husband and I both decided we were being called to do. We each had a book that we had to fill out. It was the pamphlet of papers. It took forever to fill it out. My husband had one. I had one. We had questions pertaining to what kind of childhood we had about our siblings childhood. We also had to go on into our children as we had them, what they were like. We had to answer questions about ourselves, about each other. They would match them up, I guess. I'm not real sure. 
It took months and months between the paperwork and the classes to uh, get everything done. The references could not be related. As far as detail, I'm not real sure. Just people that had known you for a certain period of time, you had to let them know how long the people knew you. We got our fingerprints done. We had to fill out forms um, giving all our aliases, and they ran a background check on us for that, too. Even as foster parents, you had to continue to do that. And then when uh, you had a child in the house, when they turned the age of 18, they also had to be fingerprinted and have a background check run on them. It was like five classes, and each one ran for a period of hours. They would help you understand what the child had gone through. They let you know about cases so you could understand things a little bit better. They always had workshops where you could work through things and try to relate to problems. You always had a choice on the child. You could also choose whether you wanted just babies or a certain age range. Some only chose babies. Some only chose up until like 13. And then others just wanted teenagers. You can choose if the color of a child mattered to you. They give you all these choices. To us, nothing mattered. They also ask you if you want to be short-term or long-term. We chose short-term, but we ended up getting two long-term foster children that we had for the length of time we were foster parents. And then when they left, then we were done with it then. Before Marcus came to live at the Carroll's home, another key character entered the picture. This person is Amy Baker, single mother of three young children. When Amy was in grade 10, she dropped out of high school and she decided that it was time to get her GED. In order to do so, she needed to take classes twice a week for three hours. But for her to do that, she needed someone to care for her children and couldn't afford childcare services on her own. The county agreed to help her find a daycare provider in her area and also offered to subsidize the cost. In fact, Amy was only required to pay $2 a month because of her financial situation. The childcare provider they found for her was Liz Carroll. Upon Amy's first visit to the Carroll's home, she recounts feeling very comfortable with the idea of Liz looking after her children. To her, the Carroll home appeared to be a very happy and loving environment. She felt so good about it that she actually recommended that her two sisters have their children watched by Liz as well. The first time one of Amy's sisters arrived at the Carroll's home, David happened to be there. She recognized him from their youth, but they remembered him as Dave C. Me and my sister went there to either pick up my kids or drop them off. And um, 
I, I think that she says something about knowing him. Either her, she, Tanya, or Dave, rec they recognized each other, and he'd said from Holly Lane's, and, uh, and then that's how I remembered him, from being from Holly Lane's. When I was, um, like, 15 or 16, I knew him as Dave C. I didn't know him as Dave Carroll. I just knew him as Dave C. After a few months of Amy having their children being watched by Liz, she managed to acquire three part-time jobs and soon needed Liz to go from watching her children a few hours a week to six days a week. Amy recalls Dave C. often making suggestive comments to her. Just sexual comments. It's like I would asking me like if I wanted to be with him and Liz. He once asked if she would be interested in staying the night, but Amy always sloughed it off and responded as if he was joking. I didn't necessarily call him on, but I just laughed it off like you're you're crazy, you're lying. And then he, I guess he didn't he didn't think, like, he knew that I wouldn't do that. Like, I didn't want to do that stuff, and so he just blew it off. Almost a year later, the Carols were on the move again and moved to an area away from where Amy's kids attended school. So she decided to move her children to a daycare closer to home. She did, however, manage to remain in touch with the Carols. On one occasion, she got together with the Carols and her sisters for an outing skating. Amy recalls Liz at one point grabbing her butt and bumping into her from behind, rubbing her body parts up against her. She um, grabbed my butt and come up behind me on the skating floor and like um, bounced up against me and actually made me fall. It's unclear from all our research what happened next between Amy and the Carols? But at some point, it's reported that David actually moved out and left his wife. Apparently, it was because he was unsure about whether he wanted to continue raising foster children or not. We couldn't find out how much time had passed before David moved back in. But we did find that when he finally did, he didn't move back alone. Accompanying him, was Amy Baker and her three children in tow. The living arrangement between the three adults is still a bit of a mystery. Some reports say that Amy was David's live-in mistress. Amy says that Liz allowed her and David to have sexual interactions as long as she was present for it. A later confession from Liz says that she wanted no part of it, but would be urged by her husband to be involved in their sexual relations. We bring this up only because it will help bring some understanding as to what happens later. Needless to say, Amy moving into the house was yet another bit of information that was never divulged to the agency. So Marcus, a three-year-old with special needs, requiring extra amount of care and attention and understanding is placed in this home, where there's a history 
of domestic violence, mental issues, and an unstable relationship between three adults. Just about four months after Marcus is placed in the care of the Carols, he goes missing. On August 15th, 2006, Liz Carroll calls paramedics after she says she passed out in a local park due to a heart condition. When police and paramedics arrive, Liz says she had three children with her. Police confirmed that all three children were accounted for and noted three booster seats in her car. Shortly after being transported to the hospital, David and Amy arrived with their other children. They had been just across the street at the YMCA. David then asked where Marcus was. Liz then stated he must have wandered off while she was passed out, but never mentioned him ever being with her at the park to the authorities. The community immediately jumped into action. Police, search dogs, and volunteers searched the area looking for Marcus. Thousands more joined in the search, looking through neighborhoods and surrounding areas. You know, it obviously upset everyone that something like that could happen. Sherry came to this very park to search for Marcus Faisal. It was, um, you know, very, very close to my heart with my three kids. She was one of thousands who came to Julius Park after Marcus was reported missing. Sean and Shannon Cantwell brought their children for the walk. Pretty much, you know, your heart just pretty much broke when the whole story happened. A search of the Carroll's home was also conducted, which turned up nothing. Days later, Liz Carroll held a press conference where she pleaded with the public to help her find Marcus. I'm asking that anybody that saw me with my kids or saw me or saw Marcus to please contact the authorities. Marcus hadn't wandered off. In fact, he never even had the privilege of playing at the park, as Liz said he had, and the rest of the children she had brought with her that day. In our next episode, you'll hear about the horror that was inflicted upon innocent little Marcus, not just on the day he went missing, but for days and months leading up to his disappearance. truth of what Marcus experienced at the hands of the people who were entrusted to care for this child will undoubtedly break your heart. You'll hear about the abuse and neglect this toddler endured rather than the extra care he should have experienced and deserved.
This episode was brought to our attention by a member in the Podcasts We Listen To Facebook group. The member felt so strongly about bringing attention to this story that she approached the podcasters in the group. Not only have we covered Marcus's story, but Cambo from the True Crime Island podcast has done a great job at covering the story as well. I would also like to thank Casey, who assisted us with the research and script writing for this episode. It was a pleasure working with you. And now I would like to introduce you to two podcasts that are very close to the Madness family. Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. Hello everyone, my name is Karen Wickiam, and I am the host of STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. I was a nurse for over 20 years in the emergency department and decided to hang up my stethoscope and pick up the mic and talk about strange medicine from around the world, bizarre treatments, medical mysteries, scary diseases, and everything in between. And I'm also going to interweave some wild, weird, and incredible true stories from my time as an ER nurse. So please come join me, Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And remember, sometimes it's the cure that kills you. And the Gone Cold Podcast. On February 17th, 1974, Carla Walker was pulled from the passenger side of a car. After a struggle leaving her boyfriend unconscious, Carla was abducted by the strange attacker. Her body was found in a culvert near a lake three days later. Join the Gone Cold podcast as we explore Carla's case in depth as well as other unsolved and missing persons cases throughout the state of Texas. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E I'm not prepared to run